0: We are joined once again by Jeremy Kuzmorov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine, who's here to talk about one of his more recent articles exposing the Ukraine version of Operation Phoenix that's now underway. <laughs> I'm Monica Perez, going to strap on a second tank for Jeremy and go in deep with today's dive master. Hey, Jeremy, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me again. My pleasure. I uh, this article that you wrote, I'm going to just read the headline of it from your uh, online magazine, Covert Action CIA behind secret plots to kidnap, torture and assassinate Ukrainian dissidents for President Zelensky says Ukraine defector. Now, that's a really bold statement. And as I went through and read this article, I mean, it was just hard hitting with, uh, many examples and naming names. And my guess is there's actually a lot more to it than you could even cover in this article. And I have some, I just was hoping we could go through some of the bigger picture items here. And, uh, you know, if you want to give an overview of kind of where this came from, and then I want to ask you some specifics.
1: Sure. Well, uh, I mean, I think, you know, the the Ukrainian officials are actually pretty brazen. Like if you read some of their um, you know Facebook or Twitter or um, Telegram pages, they're actually openly bragging about this stuff. Like uh, you know there was a mayor and uh, I forget his name. He was mentioned in the article. There was a mayor of a small town in eastern Ukraine who was executed, and the Ukrainian Interior Minister wrote on his page uh, something like, "Oh, there's one more traitor. We don't have to worry about." And he mentioned that, you know, we dealt with him in our own way and that there was no actual trial. So he was never formally accused of anything. And that's where the, you know, and he's he's like, we're, you know, happy that this guy is dead.
0: And, and this was an elected own... official. This yes. Is this, a politician. Is a,
1: this is a mayor of a town in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, that's where the parallel, the Phoenix Project in Vietnam comes in because, uh, the Phoenix Project, yeah, for viewers who don't remember or weren't around at that time, was this large-scale operation run by the CIA in South Vietnam during the Vietnam War, where they were targeting the you know Viet Cong infrastructure. The, uh, the Viet Cong, you know Vietnamese Communists, are part of the National Liberation Front, which was a, a rebel group in South Vietnam that was trying to overthrow the U.S. puppet government and expel the U.S. from Vietnam. And unify the country with, with Ho Chi Minh who was overwhelmingly popular uh, and Ho Chi Minh's successors. Uh, and yeah, they they you know they would basically send in these uh, agent, local proxy agents to kidnap them, and then they disappeared into the gulag system uh, of South Vietnam and there weren't trials and many were executed without trial. Uh, so it was it was doing away with any kind of you know judicial system and legal process. And they were targeting civilian officials. In fact, yeah, when there were congressional hearings, see, one difference is that in the Vietnam era, there was an anti-war movement in existence. And there were congressional officials who were very concerned about how U.S. taxpayer dollars were funding this basically terrorist campaign. And there were congressional hearings that helped to expose it to the U.S. public. And there were uh, uh, government officials on both sides of the aisle who were working to expose it. One was uh, Ogden Reed. I think he may have been – I forget if he was Democrat or Republican. I always remember a quote from him because it's in Douglas Valentine's book, The Phoenix Project, where he said, you know, if the, uh, uh, if the union had been running a Phoenix Project during the Civil War, they would have executed Jefferson Davis and like you know civilian mayors. And that's who they were targeting. Because like in the Vietnam case, you had a lot of mayors who were sympathetic or, you know, local city council or local officials, county commissioner, who were sympathetic to the Viet Cong insurgency because the U.S. had imposed an illegitimate government. And in the Ukraine case, you have many people in eastern Ukraine who want negotiation with the Russians, who want an end to the war, who may favor the Russian side. Uh, and they're being targeted in this new Phoenix program. And the CIA is behind it like they were in Vietnam. They have apparently a whole floor uh, in the uh, Ukrainian secret services in Kiev. And there are reports recently in the New York Times that the CIA has a significant presence in Ukraine as and has had so since the Maidan coup of 2014.
0: So, first of all, just to establish, these are not terrorists. These are people who were probably elected locally, they're politicians, or in some cases, political opponents. I know that you're talking about this under Zelensky recently, and I really want to dig into that. But I remember because I was following it from the beginning of the coup, and I think it was 2014 or 2015, someone who I considered to be a really... Um, powerful a uh, patriot to his region was alexander zakarshenko i don't know if that goes behind uh, is prior to the stuff that you were looking at but he was a, a um, very brave person he was fighting the fight in eastern ukraine and then i believe he was elected as president of uh, Do, uh of luhansk or donetsk and they just he had a, a routine a really handsome guy around 40. Get a routine, and they just blew up his cafe. And again, like they were totally proud of it. A lot of collateral damage. A lot of other people died. And um, this was from the beginning, from 2014. And I know that that's where the Azov battalion, which is like the kind of I, I want to talk about that a little bit. And you were saying about the CIA setting stuff up there in 2014, but somewhere else, I think in um, when you dug in a little bit more to what uh, Valentine was saying that the CIA was starting there in 1991 like right after the Berlin Wall fell and that the ultimate goal now this is something i'm a little uh you know flabbergasted by i've i heard it once before but um never so clearly that as they were in there since 1991 set, setting up fronts setting up um trying to control institutions uh, including police chiefs and that the ultimate goal actually was to provoke a war with Russia, kind of decimate the country or r- turn it into rubble so that you could buy it up again because it is such a valuable piece of property. That So the CIA presence seems to have long predated even this round from eight years ago.
1: I think so, yeah. I think with the fall of the uh, Soviet Union, the CIA and U.S. government saw a huge opportunity uh, to dominate, you know, Eurasia, and that had long been a goal of strategic planners like Big New Brzezinski, who was a big mastermind behind U.S. foreign policy and like provided the intellectual uh, guidance. And he always uh, talked about, you know, control of Eurasia was key to global domination. And you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, and you know, the Russians lost all those areas. I mean, formerly Russia had controlled. Huge amount of, uh, you know, they lost so many regions and, and, you know, country became independent like Ukraine. And then Russia was ruled by Boris Yeltsin, who was a very weak leader, was willing to sell off uh, their resources uh, and promote this shock therapy privatization initiative that turned over their their economy to uh, local oligarchs and and Western uh, investors. Uh, So this was an opportune moment for the U.S., uh, to move in and dominate the entire Eurasian region. And Ukraine was a country of important strategic value that they were trying to pry away from Russia and into the western orbit. And you know expand NATO, they had the plan even though Bush uh, the first you know his administration had promised that NATO would not expand eastward, but Clinton violated that pledge by 98. I think they had the plan, you know, in those years, beginning to incorporate countries like Ukraine and the Baltic states, and to dominate the entire region, take control of Eurasia, which is rich well in oil and gas, and is seen as the key to world domination. So they want to keep Russia weak, and they, you know, pr- continue to pursue this policy for decades now. And you know, Putin was a much strong Putin was, was selected as Yeltsin's successor and he was supposed to continue with his kind of pro-Western policy. Uh, but you know, Putin proved to be more of a match for the West and started really standing up for Russian interests against Western aggression. And so they started demonizing him after the first couple of years. Initially, if you read like the New York Times, because I did some research where I went back to like what they were saying about Putin when he first came in office. And they're actually pretty positive about him, like in the New York Times uh, and other leading establishment uh, journals, newspapers. But within a couple of years after Putin started asserting more Russian independence and reversing some of Yeltsin's policies, they started turning against him and, and depicting him very negatively.
0: The uh, Specifically, just to go back to a couple of things that you said, specifically, they didn't want Warsaw Pact countries to join NATO. They wanted to them to be a neutral zone. And I believe up to like Ukraine, maybe in Georgia, but the vast majority of Warsaw Pact countries became a part of NATO. I think during Clinton's eight years, if you go back and look, so it was very specific, very clear cut. It's not nebulous at all. And I don't know if you caught this, you probably did because you're so well informed, but did you see that Brzezinski's son is the ambassador to Poland, and now we're putting basically our bases there. Yeah, actually,
1: that, that's the topic of my next article. I was starting to write that this morning. Jeez I mean, it's just you, you can't
0: yeah, make this stuff up. Announce to
1: speak these you know permanent military base there, and yeah, this is like the wet dream of, of, of his father's <laughs> big view you know, And dream. then his
0: his sister, his big's daughter, is a is a media mouthpiece.
1: Hmm. And, you know, as Big New is a descendant of the Polish aristocracy, you know, who really hated Russia and these rabid Russophobes, and they kind of infected the American body politic. Uh, although I guess they fit in well with the agenda of the, of the U.S. and their designs of dominating, you know, world domination and dominating that region and taking charge of all the oil and gas resources. So it fit their agenda. So, but I mean, another context would be seen as a, a racist, you know, if you use those kind of language that that Russian are describe this kind of aggressive foreign policy I mean is like a maniac you know I mean that's what you saw with if you follow the Nazi rhetoric they were also always attacking Russia and uh, you know had aggressive designs in that region so it's almost not uh, I mean they're not exterminating Jews but they have the same aggressive design as, as the Nazi regime had.
0: How do you what do you make of the The pattern I seem to observe, which is the stuff that happens in Ukraine and in that region seems to be kind of dormant under Republicans, but comes back with a vengeance under Democrats. Like, what do you make of that? And I'm, I'm not trying to be partisan. It's just because I actually have a hard time believing there really are two factions. The closest I can come to saying that the Republicans and the Democrats are really at odds is that maybe they fight like two mob families for the corners. Maybe they fight for who gets the corruption because it seems to me like a, a big piece of the Ukraine thing is what a great conduit it is for corruption to send arms there that they resell that they can't even use and line the coffers or operate or uh, fund black operations. But it does seem to have uh, more Democrats than, Repo- or it seems to have been dormant under the Republicans and, and from Brzezinski to Biden and Clinton seems like the Democrats are more aggressive up there.
1: I would say, yeah, the, the Democrats have been more aggressive. I mean, I think it's generally a bipartisan strategy. The Bush administration was pretty strongly, <laughs> Uh, anti-Russia and pretty extremely, I would say, aggressive uh, in that region. Uh, they were you know, really courting like Russian enemy, like Georgia, uh, which was also they're trying to get to join NATO, and they support this uh, terrible leader, Mikhail Saakashvili, uh, after this color revolution in Georgia. And the Bush administration supported the color revolution in Ukraine uh, in 2005, uh, so it's really a longstanding strategy. I think that's bipartisan to try and you know pry all these uh, countries that are uh, you know uh, near Russia or that had been part of the Soviet Union into the western orbit so they can encircle Russia. And ultimately, uh, the long-term goal is to facilitate regime change, to insert a Yeltsin type. Uh, who I think now they Navalny is uh, the guy they want, although he has about two or three percent support <laughs> within Russia. So, and then, yeah, but I agree. I mean, Trump did ratchet up the sanction. Uh, Trump did make some po- uh, steps uh, that could have reversed the policy. He did uh, meet with Putin. Uh, He spoke a little more respectfully of Putin. At time, he was uh, holding back on military aid. But then he went ahead and sold um, uh, anti-javelin missiles to Ukraine. Uh, So he he ratcheted up the economic sanctions on Russia. So I think sometimes, you know, Trump is more talk. And then, you know, behind the scene, he was kind of continuing even escalating the obama policy because the yeah, obama had sold a lot of weapons but he refused to sell javelin anti-tank missiles to ukraine biden within that administration was a super hawk pushing for the sale of those those anti-tank weapons uh but trump eventually gave the green light for that so but yeah biden you know since he took over i, I didn't expect it but biden has essentially provoked the war and then they've armed ukraine to the uh, teeth with Billion and billion of dollars of weapons, uh, and now what they're doing in Poland. But that that started earlier. Uh, Trump actually uh, was a beefing up Poland military, and was talking. Of, there was talk in the Trump years of a permanent military base that the, the Polish leader was even going to call it uh, Camp Trump or something. Uh, and that was part of like an inter. The strategy was called Intermarium. They were taking some U.S. troops out of Western Europe to send them to Eastern Europe. Uh, so they, they can encircle Russia um, and uh, yeah isolate Russia from, from Western Europe. So I, I think this is a, a longstanding strategy that transcends uh, partisan politics. And we see actually both parties are very similar, certainly in foreign policy. And so when we have an election, uh, we don't have much of a choice because we know it's going to be the same strategy whether Democrats or Republicans are elected. It's just a different style and different personality at the helm. But I do agree the Democrats have been more hawkish and more dangerous than than Republicans. Like we do see there was some backlash, you know, 13, I believe 13 Republicans voted against the $40 billion aid package to Ukraine, zero Democrats, including the Bernie Sanders wing. That tells you something. And Biden was the most hawkish of all on on Ukraine and also embedded himself with the corruption. Uh, So that tells you something too.
0: Uh, I have so many things to say in response to what you were saying, but have you ever really dug into the Biden corruption? Have yeah, I, I think done
1: that? people would be outraged, you know. <sighs> and I, I think the left media tried to claim it was, you know, Russian disinformation, or you know, they were they didn't want Trump elected, so they they urged that not to be uh, broadcast. And yeah, it, it's 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 horrific. I mean, the Barishma Well, my own belief is that Burisma was a CIA front operation because when they appointed uh, Hunter Biden to the board, uh, a few months later, they appointed Kofor Black to the board, who you may have heard of. Do you know him? Yeah.
0: Yeah. What was he in the news for? I, I was looking him up recently. What was that?
1: Well, he was the CIA's number three man yes. in war on terror and head of CIA counterterrorism. Yes,
0: yes I discovered that he was yeah. on that Burisma board, and I was like, Why? Yeah, so
1: like once a CIA agent, always a CIA yeah, agent. for
0: sure. And His handler, person, really. He yeah, must have been the, there to handle.
1: Yeah, and the person in control of Burisma was Ihor Kolomoysky, <sighs> who was uh, funding the militias, the Azov and other uh, right-wing militias that were uh, fighting the war in eastern Ukraine, in part because the Ukrainian army... Was very reluctant to fight their own people, so they relied on these uh, uh, paramilitary militias that uh, this warlord Kowalski was funding, and he was he was the ultimate uh, executor uh, executive of Burisma. So you put two and two together with Kofer Black and him. It uh, seems clear that they're using that to uh, finance uh, the you know, and Hunter Biden was lending some legitimacy, although you know he may have been profiting. On the slide too, and then you know Biden's role in firing the attorney general. I mean, I think that was key—the to the whole operation that Biden went there to ensure that this uh, attorney general, who's actually honest, you know, Victor Schalken Sh- was his name. Yeah, they had him fired. And imagine a foreign leader came to our country to have the attorney general fired.
0: And I think <laughs> they our... had the next one fired too because he didn't work out as well. Yeah, he didn't Except do exactly what they wanted. kind of rogue guy, and they set him yeah. up too. It's yeah, like
1: modern-day modern, modern day colonialism. I mean, yeah. the, the country, and, you know, I think that's the way a lot of Ukrainians see it, is their country has been turned into a colony of the West and the United States. They, they've lost their sovereignty under this current regime. And it's a humiliation that, that, that a foreign leader could come in and dictate who's their attorney general, in this case, to protect his own son who's making, who has no background in that uh, field of energy. <clears throat> All of a sudden, he's on the board making $60,000 a month. And he being protected, his company is, is so corrupt and owes, uh, I mean, they owed like 40 billion, 40 million in back taxes. And they only in the end had to pay like $7 million. And I think, you know, their executives should have been in jail for all kind of corrupt practices. But Biden protected them.
0: The Kolomoisky, also just a few more <laughs> tidbits there. Another wrinkle for you, Jeff, is that uh, Zel- Kolomoisky owned the media company that Zelensky rose to fame on, kind of the way Zucker got Trump into The Apprentice. I think that's interesting. Uh, the the There was a, in addition to the Burisma thing, one of the other assets of Kolomoisky was that Privat Bank, which he drove into the ground by funneling out IMF money to, I think, Cyprus. And when they nationalized that bank, because like Poroshenko had no choice, even though he was in Kolomoysky's pocket, probably, they took him out and put Zelensky in. And then under Zelensky, I think they're considering compensating Kolomoysky for nationalizing that bank that he ran into the ground. So there's a lot of little tendrils there, but there were just a few things that, from what you said... uh, yeah, and if I can add before, yeah, we continue, please do.
1: Yeah, we have an article coming out about that next week, uh, and then uh, Kol was laundering a lot of his money in, in the midwestern United States, and he was perpetrating a massive Ponzi scheme.
0: Massive.
1: Now, uh, massive. Civil court, and he's barred yeah. from entering the United States. Uh, and he stole, you know, uh, so the the level of corruption and then Zelensky was cited in the Pandora Papers for laundering money in offshore bank accounts and somehow amassed a huge fortune and these mansions in Florida and Italy, where he, in London, where he can retire to uh, when his time is up. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a massive corruption. And I mean, the Ukraine government has been exceedingly corrupt since, since 1991. But I mean, it begs the question of of why are U.S. taxpayers funding this money, all that money to Ukraine? I mean, we have so many problems here in the United States, and they're sending billions and billions of dollars to the most corrupt government. Um, You know, it was ranked as the most corrupt in Europe. It's it's among the most corrupt in the world. And you know, somebody this morning, a a friend of mine in Russia, uh, who's a uh, uh, is a um, president of a university in Russia sent me an article to his list. Uh, Here's how American taxpayer dollar at work. And it was a picture of a Ukrainian uh, high-level official who was arrested at the Hungary airport, smuggling like $30 million in cash.
0: Because there's no accountability. There's no accountability on that money.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, some of that is U.S. taxpayer dollar. these weapons, I know there are reports even Russians are getting some of the weapons that are being sent. And some may be sold on the black market. Uh, others are not operable even in the th- war theater, and others are, are using to kill and prolong the war. So, I mean, uh, you know, it, Americans, what uh, you know, I mean, it's about they, similar to Vietnam. I mean, their yeah. taxpayer dollars is going into a, a black hole, uh, and it's sad. I mean, I, I think the they, thing in Vietnam, that, that was the most corrupt regime. You know, the U.S. tends right. to support the most corrupt government. Of course.
0: Who anywhere. else? It's almost a tautology, like, yeah. It has to be a highly corrupt regime if they're going to sell out their own people to the CIA. Exactly. Right? You can't do yeah. it with anybody else. It has yeah, to be. They
1: have no morals or principles. Yeah, you It's know, only so, those kind of people, the worst kind of human beings. Yeah, Like Ashraf Ghani, who escaped Afghanistan with bundles of cash while his own people are starving and dying and will be viewed forever as a Benedict Arnold in this country, much like Nguyen Dan Tzu, and other U.S. puppets uh, throughout the last few generations.
0: When they passed that Ukraine money, I think they they voted down a COVID relief bill on the same day. So like they gave forty billion dollars to Ukraine, and like some like small business relief fund was like, oh no, because of I think it's because they wanted the small business to fail. Here, so so, but just a few things I do want to go back is that. Uh, you had said that Obama had refused to put missiles in th- in Ukraine, a certain kind of missile in Ukraine. And I recall there was that weird hot mic where he was talking to Medvedev, whatever his name is, and said, the other <laughs> Vlad, and said, could you tell Vlad, number one, that I I'll deal with the missile thing. He just can't out me before my election. It's my last election. I think Putin... Revealed that to like hold Obama to it, you know, or something like that. But I feel like there was some backstory there uh, with Obama. Mm-hmm. Feel free to comment or, or well, none. yeah, with
1: Obama. Yeah. I mean, Obama started. I think if anybody was responsible for the mess in Ukraine, it is the Obama administration, and and Biden was his key point man because it was Obama who. Or, well, first, Obama had a reset. He started with a better policy toward Russia. He had a reset policy. And he was working with with Medvedev, because that, the the Bush had strained relation with Russia largely over the Georgia conflict. Obama had the right approach in his first term—a reset and reestablishing better relation with Russia, and they did sign this uh, new START deal to regulate uh, nuclear weapons. So it was a good first term, but then he shifted. And he uh, largely, I think, because of lobbying uh, from figures like William F. Browder, uh, the financial interests that had looted Russia in the 90s and gotten tired of Putin, who was uh, standing up for Russian interests and standing against them. You know, Browder had been charged with tax evasion. And a lot of them had been uh, evading their taxes, and they owed millions of dollars to the Russian government. And Russia was trying to c- reclaim that money. And they lobbied the Obama administration effectively. And 2012, Obama imposed the uh, sanctions on Russia. And then 2014, he supported the Maidan coup that is what caused the calamity we're seeing play out now and triggered the civil war and the war in in eastern Ukraine. So that's on the Obama administration. And Obama, uh, who knows what direct role he played himself in U.S. policy, but it's his administration. Uh, that, that caused this uh, calamity. And he was escalating. I mean, initially, you know, they went in stages. And that's how they operate because they have to justify it before, you know, the U.S. public. So they started off, you know, with with pretty big aid package. And they they gave what they called non-lethal weapons, which included drones and a lot of really pretty heavy-duty equipment. But they held off initially on the javelin, maybe to appease the liberal base a little so there wouldn't be so much outcry. And gradually, they, they, they moved up to, by, by the Trump years, they are sending the javelin. But Biden was arguing for the javelins early on. He was always a hawk on Ukraine. You know, they presented Biden as like a dove on Afghanistan because he advocated for less. But he was the dove because for Afghanistan, you know, he was advocating for a surge, but not as many troops like as Obama. Right,
0: right a relative. Others, like the was-
1: military. So he's somehow a dove. Right. and he was a super hawk on Ukraine. So I I I think Biden's a horrible person and always in the Democratic Party was among the most uh, you know supporting the worst policies for a 50 year career right. and somehow he became their leader is the a sad sign of, of that party.
0: Yeah. And I and just to and the, I I actually as you were talking I realized maybe an answer to my own question about the role of Republicans versus Democrats, because I do feel like, first of all, um, NATO, that Trump did, I really smelled a rat when Trump was like, we've been supporting NATO long enough. They need to up defense spending on a country by country basis. And every, all the, all the Republicans, you know, the voter base was like, yeah, that's true. Why do we, uh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why, Why is he promoting them to increase their defense spending? You only do that when you're readying for a war. We should be celebrating if he says, you guys aren't paying enough. Let's shut this thing down. I'm going to start paying less. I really smelled a rat with that. So he did set the stage for what we're seeing right now. And also, I absolutely felt that the impeachment, that Trump's first impeachment where he had this weird, what seemed to me very scripted call with Zelensky, which later seemed inspired by Biden's own leaked call with Poroshenko, telling him what to do, if you recall that, saying, like, why were you so obvious in Crimea? Like, you know, don't don't just take your marching orders from us. But uh, so when I saw that Zelensky-Trump conversation, which seemed so weird, and I did say at the time, like, I think this is to get liberals to unequivocally support military aid to Zelensky because that was really the crux of the impeachment. I think I explained, you know, I stated my point of view last time we talked, but it's starting to come together for me that that would be a way to get the liberal base on board, that really the Republicans and the Democrats, maybe it looks like the De- the Republicans are more passive. They do tend to be the second, you know, they're the Avis kind of of parties like they they like being second. They really like to pretend like they're fighting the good fight, but never have to really deliver. That's their role. And similarly, uh, for the Democrats, I think their role is to just, uh, you know, nowadays just do the opposite of what the Republicans are doing. You know, anything that the Democrats do is OK, as long as it's the opposite of what the Republicans are doing as far as our, you know, dumbed down electorate or whatever. But yeah, I can see that the whole thing, I mean, I always go down that rabbit hole of everything is fake. Like I could see the whole thing being a bit of a stage play.
1: I agree. Yeah. It was a very sly move on the Democrats uh, that, you know, they associate (laughs) Trump with a more peaceful policy. You know, since Trump, you know, it's called the Trump derangement syndrome, you know, since (laughs) it, it has to be bad. I mean, you know, so so now Trump somehow uh, comes across as you know he's pushing for cutting off aid to Ukraine, even though he was actually pretty hawkish. But they put you know depict him as as cutting off uh, this supposed blackmail scheme, but actually you know, it was also a way to diffuse uh, attention on the corruption of Biden by make it seem like it was some kind of political ploy by Trump when there needed to be investigation of Biden. And it would be ultimately probably you know, an impeachable offense uh, and land him and his son in jail, probably, for stuff they did. Uh, and so it, it's just yeah, a sly political trick, uh, yeah, as you say, to get liberals to be on board with this Ukraine conflict. And I mean, I think the uh, Russiagate saga uh, fulfilled the same purpose. And for a year, they were trying to smear uh, Trump as a Russian agent. And they descended to the level of Joseph McCarthy, and, and even worse, uh, out, uh, you know, they basically were at the level of the John Birch Society, which was ridiculed in liberal circles in the fifties for accusing Dwight Eisenhower being a Russian agent, and figured like Walt Ross, oh, yes. and people who escalated the Vietnam War. I mean, you kind of laugh at that. I mean, yeah, right. These are people who just like went crazy with the anti-communism. And we're just accusing, you know, high-level government officials without any proof of being Russian agents. And that's now what they – you know, they did that for years on MSNBC and CNN and New York Times. These are supposedly uh, respectable liberal uh, publications. You know, the intellectual lead of the country uh, were at the level of the the John Birch Society. And it was all designed to mobilize public opinion both against Trump and against Russia – and to support a uh, war against Russia, which is being fought now by proxy. And this war could, you know, get it's getting hotter and hotter. The Biden administration just announced even more, you know, 800 million more aid this week. And they're uh, establishing permanent bases, as we discussed, in Poland. And this could uh, evolve into a world war. And the public had been conditioned liberal. I think they targeted liberal opinion to get the li- because liberals traditionally oppose wars like Vietnam and others. So they had to get liberal opinion on board, and they've used all kind of tricks in the books to do that.
0: One thing I noticed back during that impeachment about, you were pointing out that Trump was presented as the dove here. And even though he was militarizing and he was aggressive in that way, it was just in this isolated instance uh, depicted otherwise. I remember looking into, at the time, I don't know how I stumbled across it, it was very hard to find. The Trump administration at that time did actually withhold humanitarian aid from the Northern Triangle, I think it was called, like Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador— pending their capitulation on the immigration policies that we wanted to impose on them, including, I think, building like the equivalent of our FEMA camps there, which I had considered to be like an infrastructure project that was just purely corrupt. And then I noticed in the recent summit of the Americas, Kamala Harris and Biden carried on that kind of what I thought was a plot from the beginning in those countries by and in other countries by insisting that they adopt uh you know banking the poor you know that thing that is just so sketchy just like we you know our aid to the poor should be getting them all bank accounts and uh just um you know building stuff like that like their idea of how to stem our immigration crisis which I do actually think is why they've fomented it so much under Biden so that they could justify going into other countries in the western hemisphere and imposing this kind of neocolonialism there and convincing the American people that we have an interest in how other people conduct their uh, their policies because their poor policies affect our immigration. So I, I felt that there was so much going on that was of really greater importance and, again, like a Republican-Democrat continuum that started with the Trump administration withholding humanitarian aid at that time to those very poor countries, and it got no—it's actually hard to find. Not only did it not get press, it's hard to find that.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I, well, I think that was a good point, you know, as far as the continuity of administrations. And, you know, with the aid—I mean, the aid policy in Central America is often not really aid. It's, it's usually designed to, you know, assist uh, American— corporate interests and, and often it actually fuels more and more immigration because the aid is targeting the wrong way and it further ruins their economy you know and when they impose these like structural adjustment program through the IMF they starve their basic public services uh, and you know a lot of the aid is sometimes uh, uh, funneled into the like the war on drugs what they use to beef up their military and impose more repression on the people, or like police aid, where the police are really corrupt and they just give the police more weaponry uh, and they repress the population more. So, I mean, there's such a horrible track record of of these aid programs, and there's usually an underlying agenda behind them. And, you know, that sometimes like agricultural aid is designed to, you know, bring in like Monsanto and restructure their whole agricultural system in a way to, you know, to benefit US agribusiness and creates more poverty and desperation. And you wonder why you have so many desperate people trying to enter right. the United States. You know, It's become a real real crisis. So, I mean, there needs to be greater scrutiny on how aid is administered. You know, uh, obvious, you know aid, it just sounds good. Oh, this is humanitarian. We're giving all this money. We're so generous uh, to these poor you know, Central American countries. But really, when you look into it, the aid is actually benefiting certain narrow American interests and screwing up their economies even more or enhancing police repression and it's fueling more immigration. so uh, you know
0: yeah well to bring it back to the Ukraine thing, I, I noticed that towards the end of that article when you're talking more about what Valentin was saying that the CIA ha- goes through these processes with their presence there aid stuff like that, um, for in a two-tier way one, to assure political control and the other to pacify the population. And so there seems to be a, a strategy, a two pronged approach to how they control other countries. And I have heard people from Africa and I know Egypt say that the way they do it sometimes is to act like it's aid, but really it's just to um, take over institutions or control them from behind. And, uh, uh, so as far as uh, when i is do you believe that that two-tiered thing the political control on top and pacifying the population on the bottom is kind of the pattern and it is an operational in ukraine right now
1: yeah absolutely i did a study of a clandestine uh, program in the cold war uh, you know police training programs that they ran under the cover of the united states agency of international development so as packaged as humanitarian aid but they're actually financing the police to keep control over the population and root out any subversive movements So are usually left-wing or movements identified as communism in the context of the Cold War. And I think you have similar in Ukraine. We know there are a lot of special forces in CIA. We know they also set up a police program under the uh, State Department that might be used as a cover for a CIA operation because that's how those programs were used in the Cold War. And then, yeah, the, the, the aid package, well, firstly, yeah, there's so much corruption in Ukraine that the aid money doesn't often get to where it's intended. That That's one big problem is that there are corrupt officials who are stealing the money, like this woman who was caught at the Hungarian border with 20 or $30 million in cash, and that kind of thing happened frequently in, in Vietnam and also Afghanistan. So a lot of the aid money is just wasted, uh, but then other money, yeah, it has an insidious intention uh, like I know uh, Monsanto, we had an article of Covert Action about Monsanto's interest in Ukraine and how they've grown since 2014. Uh, and Even DuPont Corporation, you know, with, with Biden was affiliated, had some interest there. So a lot of times aid will uh, help enable corporations. It may have certain strings attached that uh, it's a way to kind of bribe the government. So they enact certain policies that are friendly to investors. Um, or the aid, yeah, can in ways directly uh, benefit American corporations or re- re- uh, affect their economy in a way that may not be beneficial to the local population. So, I mean, some aid programs do have a positive impact, but a lot of it does not. And there's a bigger picture. They're trying to uh, beef up this government. You know, I mean, the aid is targeted to Ukraine for political reason because they want to improve the economy so that uh, this government Zelensky and Poroshenko, that was installed in a legal coup in 2014, gained legitimacy among the Ukrainian population. So there's a political agenda uh, behind the huge amount of aid that goes in there, and you know it's it's trying to legitimize that government, that is a, a, a basically a terroristic government that has uh, banned 12 parties, has uh, a Gulag. Uh, uh, the
0: Zelensky's uh, government.
1: Yeah. The Zelensky government has banned 12 parties, and as we discussed, is carrying out these Phoenix uh, operations against um, mayors and officials who are pro-Russia. They've also banned the Communist and Socialist parties. And the, the leader of the Communist movement, I know, have been in jail. Um, you know, many leftists have been thrown in jail because their parties have been banned. And other parties that are considered pro-Russian have been banned. So they're carrying out a reign of terror. And the funding for the uh, security services is equivalent, I, I read somewhere, to the American FBI or, or something that ballpark when this is a tiny country and America is a huge country and the FBI is pretty well funded here. Some say too well funded. And imagine a tiny country wow. has the same budget for their security service. So well, it's, it's a police state uh, and you know it's being presented as a democratic government. In the media, which is false. And, you know, Russia, uh, I wouldn't say Russia is a pure democracy either, but their Communist Party is not banned. In fact, the Communist Party is uh, the second, uh, the, a main opposition party to Putin. So that tells you something. And so, you don't agree with the Communists. If you believe in democracy, uh, par- there should be freedom to establish parties with whatever view you have.
0: What grounds does he outlaw those parties on? Well, I think they've been justified, you know, in the
1: emergency climate.
0: Right. But war, yeah. Yeah. So I would say, having been following this for a long time and Zelensky to the extent, first of all, I I believe reports that his election, even so first the coup took out the democratically elected president, then uh, Zelensky was installed. And I've heard Ukrainians say that they don't believe that was a fair election. So let's say he was installed without a fair election. Uh, but even then they they the face they put on it was that he was gonna respond to people's fatigue with the Donbass conflict, that he was going to resolve that. And then when he didn't and had you know, made it very clear he wasn't going to, and that he was as corrupt as the next guy, if not more so, that was another thing that he acted like he was gonna change the corruption over there. So there was tons of that political opposition and unrest already at work. And I mean, I I know I totally think that the idea of having a war with Russia dates back to earlier, either 2014 or 1991 or whenever, but you can use something like that as a very facile um, tactic to get rid of the opposition and just blame it on the war. And and so it really, it would dovetail, but I think that that opposition pre-existed the war by far.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And, and if I could make one point from earlier with the discussion of aid, one thing Zelensky has been doing even more than Poroshenko is pri- uh, uh, instituting these privatization laws. Uh, so a lot of aid program, yeah, is designed to get US foreign investors into the country and then they're, they're pushing the privatization so it could more easily be turned over to foreign investors. So then Ukrainians don't own their own economy. Uh, it's being sold off to foreign interests. And many see this as a colonial situation. I've heard from Ukrainian activists and some who are in the Ukrainian uh, Communist Party who say this, that it's uh, becoming more and more of a, a neocolony uh, and that these privatization initiatives are behind that. And it relates to the the oppression because the economy is getting worse and worse for the average person. uh, And the money is flowing outside of the country and the government officials are corrupt and they're cutting back on services um, and there are less and less opportunities. And then they try and organize opposition. They're outlawed. And, you know, is what you're saying. And, yeah, this has gone on since 2014 – you know, Ukraine's system was not perfect prior to 2014, but, uh, you know, Poroshenko, uh, sorry, um, Yanukovych. Uh, Yanukovych was elected in 2010 in what outside observers considered a fair election. And when the Maidan protest broke out, they had, because I interviewed people who were in the protest, and they said they, there was, you know, a petition circulating to have Yanukovych impeached, but they did not get enough signatures. And there was an election scheduled for the next year. So it was a blatant coup that they pushed him out through violence and terrorism. And then his supporters were uh, stigmatized. Some were terrorized. There were numbers of suspicious deaths. A lot had to flee the country. And it was a climate of violence and terrorism since that coup of 2014. Uh, And, you know, compare it to other CIA coups like in Iran in 1953, Guatemala, all these coups caused disasters for those countries, and this just follows that. And it's, yeah, it's an authoritarian structure that's come in place. Uh, you know, parties have been banned. Like Yanukovych had not able to reestablish his party and his supporters. There was one party uh, they set up that, you know, was more sympathetic to Russia uh, and had, I think, some of his former supporters were joining. But that's been vilified. Uh, and I think they've had trouble running the, any of the elections. And now that's probably among the lists that are banned. So because I know um, Medvedchuk was jailed. You know, he was pro-Russian uh, a figure in Ukrainian politics who was considered an oligarch. But I know he was put under house arrest or he may have been put in jail as well. So, you know, they're going after it's, And, you know, somehow they present it as a war of democracy versus Russian autocracy. Uh, it's it's right out of george orwell uh, because uh and i mean russia you know has some authoritarian features under putin I, I could acknowledge that but again their communist party is legal and they don't have banned political party and they don't have a phoenix i have not heard any reports of assassinate a uh, phoenix type program these assassinations they blame putin were never verified <laughs> a lot some of them
0: happens- are preposterous scurple yeah
1: Exactly. This was part of the demonization campaign against Putin to think he's an assassin and kills his rivals when there would never proof established that even uh, there's a book I read I was trying to uh, see where the facts uh, lay and there was a book by Amy Knight I, I bought and read who was ardently anti Putin but she acknowledged the evidence was at best circumstantial in a few of the cases and wouldn't wouldn't pass in the court of law. And I mean, that has to be your standard, you know, whereas in the Ukraine case, you know, if there's not enough evidence in the court of law, you can't say, you know, some like, have accused LBJ of killing a Kennedy. We really don't know for sure. There, there's clearly something afoot on you know, the Kennedy assassination, but I don't think there's no, enough evidence to convict LBJ in a court of law. So you can't say he's a murderer of Kennedy. And, you know, and he Ukraine didn't publicly
0: would, say glad he's dead.
1: Yeah, and Ukraine—they've openly admitted on the, uh, on Facebook or ever that they killed these people, and that they they had extrajudicial process, and that these traitors have been dealt with properly.
0: Now, in our last five minutes here, I was hoping to just ask you about. The Nazi element, the Azov Battalion was established in May 2014. I think my interpretation is that they could not get, or from what I read, they couldn't get Ukrainian regular soldiers to actually go into Donbass and start killing other Ukrainians. As a matter of fact, some of them were laying down their arms or turning and joining the Donbassians, understanding what the situation was there. And they had to bring in a force that um, you know were willing to commit kind of um Atrocities, I don't know, or at least fight that against uh, their own Ukrainians. But Azov was established in May 2014. But I'm reading a book about Gladio, and I've I've read about this before. I read um, the book about Olaf Palm. Assassination in Sweden. And a lot of that talks about the, uh, Ole Demigard's book. A lot of that talks about the kind of holdover Nazis and that basically there has been holdover Nazis since World War II in some of those regions. We talk about like neo Nazis in America, but these were actual like stay behind and perpetuated. And I think in this article, maybe it was just Valentin or uh, originally from you that. that this Nazi tradition has carried on. And that is what I see, because I just thought Azov maybe was just created out of whole cloth. Is there a connection to that persistent Nazi presence there, or is it something a little more artificial in your opinion?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, several points. Yeah, this in Ukraine, and we've had a three-part series on uh, fascism in Ukraine. um, And this goes back to World War II era. Yeah, unfortunately, Ukraine has a long history of fascism and anti-Semitic groups. Uh, going back to, you know, before World War II, but that, you know, uh, were dominant and christened around this figure Stepan Bandera during World War II, who was a Nazi collaborator, and he's being worshipped, you know, so there, there's a strong line of continuity uh, up to the present day. And in the Maidan protests, uh, many, some of the protesters were holding posters of Stepan Bandera, and he was a hero uh, uh, to many in the Maidan Square and, and the far-right sector in Ukraine, uh, Which has growing influence in the country uh, and among those regiments. And as far as the war in eastern Ukraine, yeah, that was my understanding was that uh, the Ukrainian people in the Ukrainian army and Ukrainian young men, uh, maybe some women, you know, didn't want to fight their own people in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, that's really the tragedy of all this is that. Ukraine had a long, you know, they were never fighting the Russian before like that, uh, except when the Nazis invaded. I mean, they they had issues with the Russian, but they always worked them out. Ukrainians never fought each other in a a civil war like this. This was all triggered by this coup. This hatred was was built up and this horrible regime imposed, you know, they had imposed language laws in eastern Ukraine. They were forcing the Ukrainian language when those are Russian-speaking regions. And that was an attack on their culture. And they they uh, you know declared their independence with with huge support, and they were willing to support the Minsk Accords, which would have kept them in Ukraine but granted them more autonomy and rescinded those language laws. And that's a sensible solution that could have avoided this war. And then yeah, because the Ukrainians don't want to fight their own people, they had to use these militia groups, and they recruited white supremacists and and pro-Nazi elements from outside Ukraine including American white supremacists, some of whom participate in the Charlottesville uh, rally, you know, white power rally in 2017. They were among the recruits. And this was reported in Newsweek and other mainstream U.S. outlets, you know, in like before the war started, and then they just like went blank about this, how all these white supremacists were descending into Ukraine to join these pro-Nazi battalions that were attacking uh, East Ukraine, and killing oh. people and yeah. torturing them and committing massive war crimes.
0: I was just and reading what about
1: those kind of people. Do
0: an American on the ground at the Maidan when those snipers were shooting people. There was an American there with those snipers.
1: Yeah, like, there was a guy, a Boyanger, and it was proven that there yeah. were some Georgians. They paid these Georgians yes. from a Georgian battalion to uh, carry out a black flag operation where they were trying to blame it on Yanukovych's forces to discredit them. Yeah. That was a Georgian battalion. Yeah, and there was this guy Brian Boyanger, who that's him. Yeah. Up. And there was a guy, Craig Lang, who's wanted for murder in Florida. He was one of the Azov Battalion. Uh he was a white supremacist. And there are other white supremacists from the US uh went there. Uh, and there may have been some ISIS fighters as well. And they were using ISIS tactics of uh you know, cutting cutting off people's limbs oh my and, God. and huge atrocities. And they were uh, yeah. even they broadcast this on Telegram. Uh, my friend was showing me these video of the Azov Battalion released where they kill people like prisoner of war. They shoot them in the head, torture them, and they're actually displaying this on Telegram and on the internet.
0: Yeah, that's what happened in Libya, I remember. That kind of stuff. Like,
1: Yeah, that. and that's... I mean, U.S. taxpayers have been funding these terrorist groups, and it's appalling.
0: It is. Uh, I just love... Your, your recall, your facts, your... Um... The narrative that you can so well articulate is just—I mean, it's—it's it's terrible stuff, but it's so edifying. And I really appreciate your time. I know you've got to run, and I hope that we can do this yet again anytime you have uh, an article that comes out that you want to talk about. Um, I'm your girl.
1: <laughs> Great, yeah, I'll be happy to do it anytime. Yeah, next few weeks or whenever you want to do it.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeremy. Okay, thanks for having
1: me. I enjoy the rest of the day. You too.